Turn in God's holy word to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah, chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go in the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, be merciful to us sinners for our half-hearted obedience such as Jonah displays in this book. But Father, may we, by Your grace, resolve to obey, and whenever our heart is not fully in it, to obey repentantly, asking that on the path of obedience insofar as we decide to obey You, that You would change our hearts as well, that we may love You with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Father, forgive us of our idolatries, where even we take good things, amazing things, precious things, and true things, and make a bigger deal out of them than they are. Father, I pray we would be zealous for missions and for Your name among the Gentiles, but that our zeal would most foundationally be a zeal for You and Your glory and Your honor in that. Father, send Your Spirit and teach us from Your Word now. In Christ's name, Amen. By now, in our study of Jonah, you've learned that Jonah, the book, is not Moby Dick. This book does speak of a great fish, but the fish isn't that big. Likewise, God's inspired word four times speaks of Nineveh as a great city. Once in our text this morning as an exceedingly great city, but the city isn't that big. 
we can use a small thing to block out of view a big thing. Using our thumb, we can block the moon out of the night sky. As far as our vision is concerned, it's still there. But as far as our perspective, we can make it to disappear. When it comes to this book, I'm afraid we do that with either the great fish or the great city, Nineveh. Whenever we use these things to block our view of God, it's called idolatry. And so whenever we use the great fish, that's a typical temptation of the atheist. This book can't be true. And it's this idolatry of the intellect, of, of our mind, of what we can know, of the autonomy of the self to determine what is true and what is not. But I think evangelicals are tempted to a different kind of idolatry with the great city. We can block out God by obsessing over this great city. Often this book is celebrated for its message concerning missions or evangelism. And while that's an implication of this book, I'm afraid we might be putting our thumb to the sun in so doing. It's the best of things that make the worst of idols because we fail to recognize them as such. What's the big thing here? You notice in Jonah we have this series of scenes. The cast of characters varies with each one. And it begins and opens with only God and Jonah. And in between we see Jonah, the mariners, and God. Then Jonah, the fish, and God. Then Jonah, the Ninevites, and God. Now Nineveh is always in view. But what's the common cast in every scene? Well, it's God and Jonah. And it's no big mystery as to which one of them is the big deal. We shouldn't exaggerate what happened in Nineveh. Rather, we should be fascinated by what cannot be exaggerated. The mercy of God. This book tells us that God is who He has revealed Himself to be. Yahweh, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Our zeal for obedience to God's commands, including His command to make disciples of all nations, should be motivated above all by who God is, not who man is. John Stott wrote, The highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Some evangelism, to be sure, is no better than a thinly disguised form of imperialism. Whenever our real ambition is for the honor of our nation, church, organization, or ourselves, Only one imperialism is Christian, however, and that is concerned for His imperial majesty, Jesus Christ, and for the glory of His empire or kingdom. 
The earliest Christians, John tells us, went out for the sake of the name. He does not even specify to which name he is referring. But we know, and Paul tells us, is the incomparable name of Jesus. Before this supreme goal of the Christian mission, all unworthy motives wither and die. You see, who God is, that is theology, the truth of who God is, underlies missions and evangelism. Because the better we know Him, the better we'll tell of Him. And the more we'll want to do so. Rather than chiefly getting excited for missions or evangelism because of the potential of great cities or stories of great conversions, we should do so because of our great God. If you come to this text just looking for missions, if you come to this book just looking for that, I'm afraid you'll either be disappointed or disillusioned. Disappointed if you see what this text really says. And disillusioned if you start to make more of it than what it says. But if you come looking for God, for the truth of who He is, you'll not only worship Him, you'll want the nations to sing His glory. For the second time, God commands Jonah, verse 2, to arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it. Jonah deserves no second time. He deserved to be left in the depths, crushed, dead. God's saving Jonah from the deeps means not only forgiveness, but this mercy the word of Yahweh coming to him a second time and commanding him. Do you recognize the commands of God as they come to you again and again as mercy on top of mercy? You who know God's grace, you who know his forgiveness, do you sense you're coming to hear his commands again and again as mercy on top of mercy? How gracious of our God to give us such second times. Do you remember the disobedient man of God and First uh, Kings 13, in obedience to the word of Yahweh, he delivers this powerful word of judgment to Jeroboam I. And he was instructed thereafter not to return by the way which he came. On his way home, another prophet lies and says, God told you to come to my house and eat. He does. This time, though, the prophet does receive a word from Yahweh, and he says, you're going to be judged for your disobedience. You won't make it home. And the lion kills him on the way home. And if that seems severe, you do not realize the holiness and the righteousness of the God with whom we have to deal. We deserve no second times. Even as God's forgiven children... As His people, we don't deserve such second times. And every one of us, have we not, have had many, many more than two. You see the mercy of God coming to you with His commands again and again. Mercy that not only forgives and cleanses us of our sin, but grants us the honor to obey so great a King. How many employers would be so generous? with such disobedience. 
And our God is no mere employer. He is Lord. He is sovereign. He is king. We are his subjects. We are his slave. And yet he extends to us such second times. All that he calls us to is an immeasurable privilege and honor. To obey him is a high honor. And we snub these honors. And yet, following our repentance and faith, he extends to us again the honor of obeying his commands. Here, Jonah is commanded to go and call out against that city. Verse 2, Jonah's message is one of judgment. Remember that Nineveh 1 and verse 1 is an evil city. The king will call upon the people in verse 9 of chapter 3 to repent of their violence. Nahum would later speak of Nineveh as that bloody city and their unceasing evil. The righteousness of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. But here, Nineveh is receiving a specific word of condemnation and of imminent judgment. Nineveh's evil, 1 in verse 2, has come up before God. We shouldn't feel unnecessarily distant from this call, to call out against the city. Yes, we have the joy of preaching the good news of Christ, but in order to make the world understand why it's such good news, we must communicate the judgment of God. We must declare that they abide under the wrath of God. And to those who reject this message of Christ with an adamant, firm, persecution-type rejection, we've been instructed by our Lord to shake off the dust of our feet as a testimony against them. And we do this because our message isn't our message. Like Jonah here, he was to speak the words that God gave him, and no other. Call out against it the message that I tell you, verse 2. We're not prophets, but we do have the word of the prophets. And we've been commanded by our Lord to make disciples of all nations, teaching them whatsoever He has commanded. Not what we want, but what He's commanded. We're not a consulting firm hired by God to make God look good to the masses. We're not hired to do God's PR work. We are heralds. He does not require creativity. He requires faithfulness. Jonah obeys, verses 3 and 4. You see how 3, 1 through 3 is nearly identical to chapter 1, 1 through 3? Save this. Instead of seeing Jonah arise and flee... He arises and he goes to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh, this exceedingly great city and that is three days' journey in breadth. And going a day's journey in, he cries out against it. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This word for overthrown here is peculiar. It can mean overthrown, destroyed, as it clearly does here. But it also can simply communicate turned, changed. Nineveh is destined to be turned one way or another, as are we all. And many will make a great deal out of Jonah's obedience here, speaking about how his experience in the fish has transformed him, and now he's declaring the message of God's goodness. 
how that in knowing grace we proclaim grace. Well, Jonah's message, first of all, is a message of judgment. And further, as made clear by the following chapter, he hasn't got it all together yet. It's true that in, in our experience of knowing God's grace, we better proclaim God's grace, but is not our obedience so much like Jonah's here that even after that, it's a mixed bag? That whenever we do good, unrighteousness is still present and muddling the whole affair. Well, Jonah's changed, that is clear. He's being sanctified. Chapter 4 will make it clear that there's still much work to be done in Jonah. But don't underestimate this. Don't underestimate what a great thing it is to obey even whenever our obedience is half-hearted, muddled, polluted. If you don't feel like obeying, obey repentantly. We're commanded by God to love Him with all of our heart. I don't know about you, but this is a, a constant struggle, but it's never an excuse for, for no obedience at all. Obey and obey repentantly. I think that the book of Jonah testifies that there was a, a change in Jonah such that he rejoiced in what he hated. He came to love this display of God's mercy and grace. But I think he came to that on the path of obedience insofar as he was able. Here's, here's, here's a principle that don't, don't just sit around and wait until you feel like you can fully engage in obedience. But when the heart isn't there, act with the will and Change your thoughts to accord with God's. And it's on the path of obedience that you'll begin to find your heart change and conform to His. It will happen otherwise. You won't find full obedience by non-obedience. You will find greater and deeper and truer obedience by obeying as much as you possibly can. We need to recognize this sin is ingrained down to the depths of our heart. And it's never obedience as God desires, whenever it's just with our will and with our mind. But likewise, our hearts will not be engaged unless we start to obey insofar as we are able with our heart, with our will and our mind. Well, at the preaching, the preaching of Jonah, at the preaching of Jonah, Nineveh repents. They believe, verses 5 through 9. You see, it's not the preaching of the Word, but it's the Word preached that proves powerful. It's not the messenger, it's the message Paul said, it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. The people of Nineveh, verse 5, they repent, they believe, they put on sackcloth, they fast. 
It's widespread from the greatest to the least. Now, there's a lot here, but we must be careful that we don't read more here than what is. Often, Jonah is touted as the greatest missionary of the Old Testament, albeit unwilling. And this is the greatest Gentile revival or missions movement of the Old Testament. Now, certainly, I do believe this anticipates the true and greater Jonah who will gather the nations to himself. But the shadow is always lesser than reality, and we don't have to make a big deal out of the shadow for the reality to be true. As we read of Nineveh, here's what I'm saying. We shouldn't be like the camp counselor at Falls Creek, eager to count conversions when there aren't any, without looking for fruit. While this is a great and awesome act of God, I think we need to be more cautious in portraying what happens here. Our text says that they believed God. And it's true that this word can can have the idea of trust, but what is it that they're believing? Well, it's this word of judgment. They didn't believe Yahweh. That's not what we're told. They didn't believe in Yahweh. The covenant name of God, the name associated with His promises, isn't used here. They didn't trust in any kind of promise of salvation. I think there's a contrast here between the kind of faith and repentance they demonstrate and that that the Syrian general Naaman demonstrates. In 2 Kings 5, after he was cleansed from leprosy, he tells Elijah, Behold, I know that there is no God in the earth, in all the earth, but in Israel. There's this recognition of God, the God of Israel, as the one true God, and he goes on. Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but Yahweh. He uses the covenant name of God. He desires to worship Him. He rejects all other gods. You see, repentance, and this is true repentance and faith. In this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant when my master, the king, goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, Yahweh pardon your servant in this matter. I think there's a resolve there to repent of all idols and to worship the one true God according to how he has revealed himself as Yahweh, the God of Israel. Likewise, whenever we look at the king's repentance in verse 6, he arises from his throne, removes his robe, covers himself with sackcloth, sits in ashes. I think we do well when we look at this to ask, is this like the repentance of Ahab or the repentance of Manasseh? Remember, these are the, probably the most wicked kings of Israel and Judah, respectively. Ahab, that most wicked king of Israel, had Naboth murdered so that he could take his vineyard. And Elijah spoke a severe word of judgment against him. 1 Kings 21. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Does that sound familiar? Same actions. It goes on. The word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring disaster upon his house. 
Even so, Ahab's repentance proved to be like that of Esau. It wasn't this true, genuine repentance. There was a degree of repentance and faith here. You see that there's a kind of repentance and faith that is less than saving repentance and faith? Contrast that with Manasseh, this most wicked king of Judah. The Assyrians, that's the kingdom to which Nineveh belongs, took him captive. And we're told, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of Yahweh his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty, and he heard his fa- and, and he heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. It goes on. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of Yahweh and all the altars that he had built on the mountain to the house of Yahweh and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of Yahweh and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. I think this demonstrates true repentance and faith. Turning from his idols, turning to the true God, bearing forth the fruit of repentance. Here in Nineveh, we see no lasting fruit of repentance. We don't see the holiness of the Lord that follows His salvation. There's no cry to henceforth worship only Yahweh and follow in His ways. Nothing more, I think, can be said of what happens here than what God promised in Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. You see how this is all very temporal? If they repent and turn, I won't destroy them with the disaster. I said it has to do with kingdoms of this age as they exist here and now. There's no kind of eternal promise. There's no kind of promise of I will be their God and they will be my people here. This is just simply God saying, if they don't act so wickedly anymore, I won't annihilate them. Well, the king, well, let me say this. I believe that all this is an extraordinary act of God's common grace. And would to God that such acts of common grace would spread broad and far. How much of a blessing would that be should we experience something of this nature? It does portend, however, a grace that far exceeds it. To come to one who far, far exceeds Jonah. Grace and grace evermore in Christ. The king, having repented, makes this proclamation in 7 through 9. Remember that the people are already fasting and wearing sackcloth. This is nothing more than make it official and intensify it because he calls for the beast to do the same. So imagine the dissonance, the din, as you hear people weeping and crying out mightily to God, mixed with the bleeding of hungry sheep, the lowing of starving cattle. When there is any work of repentance, small or great, saving grace or even something lesser, know this, it often begins with the masses. 
God might raise up a leader, but even if he does, there's a direct work that deals with the masses, regardless of what kind of grace we have in view, common grace, special grace. If there's a work of God like this, know this, that repentance cannot be legislated. Likewise, shepherds cannot schedule revivals. I think the best way to ensure that one won't happen is to say it will on these dates. Jonathan Edwards called the First Great Awakening a surprising work. Charles Finney, in contrast, during the Second Great Awakening said, Hey, we know the methods. We can make it happen. We can manufacture this. We can wield God. Edwards and Finney represent the difference between revival and revivalism. In revival, God is sovereign. As Jesus told Nicodemus, the Spirit blows where He wishes. In revivalism, man tries to play like he's sovereign. Gardner Springs said, Revivals are always spurious when they are got up by man's device and not brought down by the Spirit of God. If we want to see any kind of work of repentance, be it saving grace or common grace, true, deep repentance and faith in Christ, or even something lesser that would just change the culture at large, if we want anything like that, we shouldn't hold out hope that if we only get the right man in office, it'll come from the top down. Even if it begins at the top, should God raise up a William Wilberforce for our age who will, end, who will labor to end abortion the way he labored to end the slave trade and slavery? Even if God should do that, if it brings about true repentance, I think it will happen in an exact way that Wilberforce was, was successful. He wasn't successful because he was this great politician in parliament. He was so successful because he sought to re-educate the people. He sought for the truth of God to change them. And it began with the masses having their eyes open such that they put pressure on their members of parliament. And then it ended. The Spirit of God must do this. Man cannot manufacture this. Now the hope of the king and the people is that God will turn from His fierce anger, verse 9, so that they don't perish. They have no explicit promise and they don't presume that God will turn. They're not like Finney, thinking, hey, we've got the right method. We do this, God will bless instead of curse. They realize that God is sovereign and free. They hope. But insofar as they received a warning, there is a reason for a kind of implicit hope in this. He's warned us. Is not the reason why He warned us so that we might repent and turn. Well, the people repent, verse 10, and God relents. Does God change His mind? Open theist, like Clark Pinnock, 
Gregory Boyd would have us believe that the future is partly, at least, open to possibilities. Open theists. There's a kind of openness out there. They might say that God knows all these possibilities. He knows if you choose the path on the right or the path of the left, what all the outworkings will be, but He doesn't ultimately know whether or not you'll choose the path on the right or the left. The future remains unknowable. They will say that, they'll even go so far as to say that God takes risk. That there are things to be determined by man's free choice. They'll speak of God's learning, even His making mistakes. Open theists have God responding just as much as they have Him determining, if not less. As a theological persuasion, I think open theism has lost a lot of steam in evangelical circles. But I think many are still practically open theists because they fail to assert the sovereignty of God in all things. They don't consistently believe He's Lord of all. So what's being said when we're told that God relented? Must we be open theists? Sometimes you see this in older translations as God repented or even God changed His mind. First, we need to understand how such language is used of God. There's three ways language can be used in this way. It could be univocal language. And that's whenever I use the same term of two different, concerning two different things in in a way that has the same meaning. So I could say that a drink is cold and that the wind is cold, and in both instances, I'm referring to the same thing in regards to temperature. It's univocal language. There's also equivocal language. So I could say that a drink is cold, and I could say that a person is cold, and I might be using univocal or equivocal language. Univocal if the drink is ice cold and the person has hypothermia and they're ice cold. Or it could be equivocal, different meaning. Same word, but different meaning. The drink is cold. I could be referring to the person as being cold-hearted, cold in their disposition, their attitude. Then there's something that's in between those two. There's analogical language. It's like, but it's also different. And so whenever we say that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, There's something like a father-son relationship that we know, but it's different. Whenever God relents, there's something similar to, to what we understand as relenting, but it's different as well. Second, observe this. It is upon wicked Nineveh that God pronounced judgment, and it's upon repentant Nineveh that He shows mercy. God hasn't changed. Nineveh's changed. And why has Nineveh changed? Because God lifted wind and sea and sent a well and had that well to, or fish, spew him up on dry land to communicate his message of judgment. Why did Nineveh change? Because God changed her. And if you have any substantial biblical knowledge, you'll know this, that she just didn't up and decide randomly in and of herself to repent. 
to any degree. But that too was the work of God in Nineveh. But more of that in a bit. The third, what you see here then is not God changing, but God being God. The reason that Jonah fled was because he was afraid God would be who he said he was. God revealed himself to his people, explaining the meaning of his name in Exodus 34 to Moses, saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Exodus 34. God had revealed Himself this, to be this God, and this was precisely what Jonah was afraid of. Chapter 4. Verse 2, Yahweh, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you, are a, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Our God is immutable. He does not change. We change. And He changes us. It is only from a certain perspective that we say God relented. Once He had His anger, His wrath abided upon us. And now He's had mercy in Christ. But this represents no real change in God. So much as that He has changed us in His mercy and grace. Now while I don't believe that the Ninevites were saved here. I could be wrong, but I don't think anything in the text makes that clear. I do believe this anticipates the salvation of the Gentiles. The point of this text is not Nineveh's conversion. The point of this text is Yahweh's mercy. If He saves Nineveh from temporal judgment through the preaching of Jonah, how much more will He save those who repent and believe at the preaching of Christ? Jonah came only with a message of judgment. But we have heard the message of salvation in Christ. Jonah tells us that the sovereign saves sinners and Jonah himself anticipates the true and greater Jonah who will gather the nations to himself. You remember Jesus said in John 10, that he lays down his life for his sheep. He willingly was plunged to the depths to save those he loved. And he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen. Jesus ensures that his sheep will hear. And this is because He does the gifts of faith and repentance. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, this grace that brings faith, this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God. 
Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you to suffer. Don't miss the first part. It's been granted to you to believe. 2 Peter 2.21 tells us that through Jesus we are believers in God. 2 Peter 2.21. And Acts 5.31, Peter declares, God exalted Him, Christ, at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Remember, Paul told Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness because God might perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Thomas Brooks wrote, Repentance is a mighty work, a difficult work, a work that is above our power. There is no power below that power that raised Christ from the dead and that made the world that can break the heart of a sinner or turn the heart of a sinner. Thou art as well able to melt adamant as to melt thine own heart. To turn a flint into flesh as to turn thine own heart to the Lord. To raise the dead and to make a world as to repent. Repentance is a flower that grows not in nature's garden. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah 13.23 Repentance is a gift that comes down from above. Men are not born with repentance in their hearts as they are born with tongues in their mouths. And the means whereby God grants this repentance and faith are clear. It's through His Word. Again, there was a kind of partial repentance at the preaching of judgment through Jonah. But through the preaching of Christ, men are born again. They're made a new creation. And the heartbeat of the new heart is faith and repentance. 1 Peter 1.23 tells us that we have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. And this Word is the gospel that was preached to us. Herein is the great motivation for missions. Not the great potentiality of great cities. Not the great potentiality of great conversions, but the great salvation of our great God who's worthy of all glory. Finally, sinner, if you know that's your place before God, understand this. If this sovereign salvation troubles you, If you're wondering, am I one of His chosen people? Am I one that He's determined for His gospel to come to the same way He determined for these Ninevites to hear the word and repent? Am I one that He's determined to hear of Christ and believe? The Bible never tells you to figure out if you're one of His sheep before you listen. It tells you that if you listen, you're a sheep. If you hear the good news of Christ crucified for sinners, if you hear the good news that He lived to be the righteousness of all who trust in Him, and you hate your sins and you want to embrace Christ and throw yourself in dependence upon Him and Him alone, if you hear that gospel and you believe, you're His sheep. 
sinner. You stand condemned before a holy God who is the lifter of waves and the hurler of storms. But Jesus Christ is the righteousness and the salvation for all who would trust in Him. If you will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to wonder like this king of Nineveh did. Who knows? God may turn. You don't have to wonder because God has promised that if you do, there is grace and mercy in Christ. And if you do turn to Him, then you will exclaim, with Jonah. Salvation is of Yahweh. He alone. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great salvation in Christ. Oh, may we genuinely love our neighbor and the nations and long for them to know and sing of your glory. But may our chief motivation, may our hope and determination spring forth from this, that you are a great God who's achieved a great salvation, that Christ is worthy of all glory, and that whenever the gospel of Christ is proclaimed, souls will be saved. You will gather all your sheep, and your name will be magnified, the name of Christ above all. And so Father, move us to zealously proclaim your word, the gospel, In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.